If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to the book of Genesis, in chapter 40. If not, we have the verses for the passage this morning printed for you in the bulletin. This morning we're continuing with our study of the life of Joseph, picking up where we left off last week, chapter 40, verse 1, and working through to the end of that chapter. In the first study of this still relatively new series, we looked at chapter 37, verses 1 to 11, where we were introduced to the main characters in the Joseph story, at least from a human perspective, and we got to see some of the interpersonal dynamics in Jacob's family and the collection of flaws and virtues that went into all that. In the second study, 37, 12 and following, after having been introduced to the main characters in the story, we then looked more closely at what is, I think, the main theological message that undergirds this story and ties everything together, and that is the providence of God. That is, God's sovereign superintendence over everything that happens, including the horrible things done to Joseph by his very own flesh and blood, and how God was able to take all the extraneous bits and pieces, both the good things and the bad, and weave them together, bringing the whole thing into the service of his purposes. And then last week we looked firstly at the account of Judah that almost seems to be an intrusion into the Joseph story, but which, as we saw, is actually there for very deliberate reasons. The reasons had to do with a problem that had plagued God's people in the past and would continue to do so throughout the remainder of their history, namely the problem of accommodation. By that I mean the ever-present threat that God's people would be led astray and absorbed into the nations around them, losing their identity, and their faith in the process. Now we've seen elements of that already in previous sermons in Genesis, going all the way back to the time of Abraham, and then at other points along the way. At any rate, the brief account of Judah in Genesis 38 graphically highlights this danger all over again. And so by its placement within the Joseph narrative, helps us to see the events of Joseph's life, among other things, as... God's way of responding to the very real threat of accommodation. In other words, it casts the time in Egypt in a different light, showing it to be uh, deliberate, God's deliberate, even strategic plan, using that pagan nation as a kind of incubator, as his means of growing Israel from a single family to an entire nation, but in a way and in a place that allowed them to retain their identity. Then alongside all of that, we also saw last week the continuation of Joseph's story, which placed side by side with the account of Judah, created quite a contrast. While Judah was freely and voluntarily moving away from his family and into a pagan culture, making bad choices, yielding to worldly temptations, Joseph, at the same time, was also moving into a pagan culture, but entirely against his own will, going not as a free man, but as a slave, 
Nevertheless, and unlike Judah, he remained faithful to God and he repeatedly resisted the very same sort of temptations that Judah did not. The reward for all that, the payoff for Joseph's obedience and faithfulness, at least in the short term, was that he was again the victim of the evil intentions and unjust actions of others. And quite suddenly, all the good things that had been happening for him as the master of Potiphar's affairs in his house, all that just went away as he was once again cast into a pit. This time, a pit that takes the form of a prison cell. And yet, in spite of this tragic change of fortunes, the text makes it very clear that God was still with Joseph and continued to bless him even within the prison raising him to a position of prominence and responsibility amongst all the other prisoners there. And even in this sudden turn of events, we see again how God's providential purposes continued to work themselves out. Because, you see, if Joseph had remained in Potiphar's house, he would never have come into contact with Pharaoh's personal staff, at least not in the way that he did and under the circumstances that he did. And then he would not have been in the position of being able to offer the very specific sort of help that he could offer to Pharaoh and that he eventually did offer and which proved to be the major turning point in the entire Joseph saga. We see God's sovereign hand in all that. In short, Joseph's setback with Potiphar, as tough as it may have been for him personally, resulted in his actually being in the right place, at the right time. At any rate, that's the sort of thing we'll be taking a further look at in our time together this morning. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, these are your words. You have preserved them for us. You have brought us to yourself by your Spirit's work. So we ask that your spirit, that same spirit, who authored these words and preserved them, who worked in our hearts, has given us eyes to see and ears to hear, we ask that that same spirit would inhabit this moment, would be our teacher now, and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law, from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 40, verses 1 to 4. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. Well, as the story picks up, as the curtain lifts, so to speak, we are greeted with the prison scene. It's the prison that is now Joseph's home. From the description in the passage, it appears that this compound was somehow connected to or part of Potiphar's own residence, which meant among other things, that Potiphar would have continued to have some interactions with Joseph, at least at some level, and in spite of all that had happened, a factor that comes into play in this story. 
And in the prison, there's two recent arrivals. One of them was uh, the king's, that is, Pharaoh's chief baker, and the other was his chief cupbearer. The chief baker's role, I think, needs no explanation. Uh, the chief cupbearer's job, on the other hand, might not be as obvious to everyone, but this person's role, among other things, was to taste and sample Pharaoh's food, to test its quality, but more importantly, to ensure that it hadn't been poisoned. There's a tough job for you. And so both of these roles, in spite of their innocuous titles, were actually quite significant. They were positions of trust. Those that fulfilled them had direct and frequent access to Pharaoh himself, and thus were in a position to gain his ear and even his favor. However, at the moment, both these men had clearly fallen out of favor with Pharaoh. We're not told what their offenses were, but apparently both merited imprisonment, at least in Pharaoh's eyes. And judging from what happens later on, it would seem likely that the baker's offense must have been more serious than that of the cupbearer. Perhaps not, but it seems like that was the case. At any rate, they're both imprisoned. However, and judging from the language used here, it would seem that in spite of their offense, and perhaps because of their former position, they were given some particular special attention even within the prison. We see that at least two ways. Firstly, in the fact that it's Potiphar himself and not the prison keeper that sets up things for them. And secondly, in the fact that one of the provisions made was that Potiphar very deliberately assigned Joseph to them, almost as if he was to be their personal attendant within the prison for an undetermined amount of time. And just stopping there for a moment, uh, just this one circumstance is one that uh, one of the commentators named Lawson has seized upon as yet another way in which uh, Joseph foreshadows and points us toward Christ. Uh, Joseph, who had received a clear vision from God and who, through that vision, had been shown the exalted and authoritative future that was in front of him, nevertheless was asked to, and he seemed perfectly willing to humble himself and give himself to the service of others, even when those others were fellow prisoners like himself. And this, says Lawson, prefigures Christ, who also quite aware of his true identity and his ultimate future was still the the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He was the one who was willing to humble Himself to get down on His knees and serve the very people who would one day fall on their knees before Him and declare Him the risen Lord of heaven and earth. The story goes on and One night, they, that is the baker and the cupbearer, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and baker, the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me.
Well, you know, some time has passed. We don't know how much. But after some time passed, with Joseph continuing to attend to these two prisoners, it happened that both of the men on the same night had a dream that was apparently so vivid, so powerful, that they were both unsettled by it when they awoke. Now, unless these men were not like other people, I would assume that both of them would have had many dreams up to this point in their life. And perhaps it was the case that people in their day and from that culture believed that all dreams were some sort of sign and held some sort of deeply significant meaning. And if that was the case, their concern over not being able to have their dreams interpreted may have stemmed entirely from that. However, their concern may also have stemmed from the fact that these particular dreams, being in fact actual revelations from God, these were especially vivid and powerful. And further, it may also have been the case that when they both awoke and discussed their dreams, they discovered that they were similar in nature, at least in some ways. And that fact would have only contributed to their sense that there was something going on here. That something important was being communicated to them, but in a language, so to speak, that neither of them understood. It's understandable then that they are disturbed and they're troubled by all this. And Joseph being the perceptive, attentive person that he is, he picks up on this straight away. He inquires about it. He's told about these dreams. He immediately responds to their distress by, with this bold rhetorical question. Do not interpretations belong to God? And the obvious answer being yes and followed by a quick invitation for them to share their dreams with him. And what is stated, sorry, what is unstated but surely implied here is that Joseph apparently has the confident expectation that as they relate their dreams, God will, in fact, provide the correct interpretation through him. Now, there are a couple of things worth taking note of at this point. <clears throat> Firstly, and even though we've sort of touched on it already, it's worth highlighting a bit further. And it's simply the fact that Joseph actually did notice that these two men were troubled. And not only did he notice it, he took a genuine interest in their dilemma and took steps to address the problem. Now that might not seem all that earth-shattering to you, but I believe it's pretty telling. Because in spite of his being in circumstances that must have been at times very difficult and disappointing, even for Joseph... But in spite of that, he does not allow himself to become this introspective, withdrawn shadow of a man who's drowning in self-pity. Joseph's soul doesn't contract to the smallness of his circumstances. He doesn't, as so often happens, use his hardship as any sort of justification for a self-centered existence. Instead, he picks up his head hard as that might have been for him to do sometimes. And he looks around and he notices the troubles of those around him. And then he is actually genuinely concerned for these men who are virtual strangers to him. And so far from making him oblivious or numb to the suffering of others, his own hardships seem to have made him especially attuned to them. 
Secondly, and in keeping with that first observation, notice how quickly Joseph, upon hearing their dilemma, expresses his confidence in the Lord as the interpreter of dreams. And then with that, please notice also, as one writer points out, that in expressing this confidence, Joseph makes it clear that it is, in fact, the Lord and not himself who does these things. In other words, he doesn't tell them that he can interpret their dreams. Instead, he gives full and exclusive credit to God right up front. And both of these things, his being concerned for others in the midst of his own hardship and the way he quickly expresses confidence in the Lord, both of those are revealing. They tell us, I believe, that Joseph had not given up hope. He had not abandoned his belief that God was with him and that God would provide for him and that God had a good and certain future for him. Indeed, I'm convinced that it was that conviction that enabled him to see beyond the wretchedness of his immediate circumstances and to respond to people with dignity and grace in a place that was utterly devoid of such things. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is his interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews... And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Well, Joseph's encouragement, the cupbearer is the first to take up his offer of interpreting dreams, and so he relates his dream to Joseph. After hearing it, Joseph immediately gives the interpretation. He takes his collection of images. He boils it down to a fairly simple statement. Three days, the cupbearer will be restored to his former position. That's what the dream was revealing. Then right on the heels of giving this interpretation, Joseph takes the opportunity to ask a favor of the cupbearer. So certain is he that this interpretation that's been given to him by the Lord is, is absolutely correct. That he asked the cupbearer to use the opportunity that is coming by his restored position, to put in a good word for Joseph, so to speak, and see if he can get Pharaoh to order his release from Potiphar's home slash prison. 
Now, apparently some commentators have looked upon this request by Joseph as something he ought not have done. As if it betrayed a certain lack of trust that God would, in fact, come through for him. Joseph's actions are said by these commentators to be an example of his trying to take matters into his own hands. However, that doesn't seem to be consistent to me with the other things that we've already seen in this passage. Indeed, it seems to me that this is simply an example of Joseph making the most of the opportunity provided and being a good steward of the time and the resources that God had given him. Even further, I think Joseph understood, or at least was beginning to understand, as much as a young man his age could, that God did, in fact, work through means. That God works through secondary causes, as our confession puts it, to affect and carry out his purposes. So for all that Joseph knew, this might well be the moment. This might be the manner in which God had chosen to bring about his release. So he gives it a shot. Well, after this, and taking encouragement from the interpretation given to the cupbearer, the baker now chimes in, asks Joseph for an explanation of his dream, which was similar in some respects, different in others. Unfortunately, after hearing the baker's dream, Joseph is unable to tell this man what he desperately would love to hear. Instead, Joseph tells him, and no doubt with more care than can be discerned, I think, from just the wording of the text, but Joseph tells him, that he too will be released from prison in three days, not to be restored, but to be hanged and left there to rot. Of course, that news would have been quite devastating for the baker to hear. And, you know, for all we know, he may have at this point dismissed Joseph's interpretation. He may have just attempted to brush it all off, telling himself that Joseph was some sort of self-deluded, crazy person, who imagined himself to have abilities that he really didn't have. We don't know. We don't know how he reacted, but here's what we do know. On the third day, which was the Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Three days go by, both of Joseph's interpretations turn out exactly as he said. The cupbearer is restored, the baker is executed. And then we're told, quite simply, that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He didn't remember Joseph's request. He didn't consider the fact that things had turned out exactly as Joseph had said they would. He didn't remember Joseph. He didn't talk to Pharaoh about Joseph. Now maybe he was so excited. Maybe he was just so relieved that to have been delivered that it completely went out of his mind. Maybe. Maybe it was that he was not sure whether he should recommend Joseph. I mean, after all, he only had Joseph's explanation of why he was in prison. But what if Joseph hadn't told him the truth? Perhaps Joseph was lying. Perhaps he'd done something to deeply offend Pharaoh, and if so, the cupbearer might be taking a risk in commending Joseph to him. He might find himself thrown back in prison. Whatever the reason, the fact remains Joseph was forgotten. 
And if you peek ahead into chapter 41 and read just the first four words, you get the real kicker. The last little twist that makes the end of chapter 40 that much more painful. The beginning of chapter 41 reads, After two whole years. Not only was Joseph forgotten, he was forgotten for two whole years. One commentator imagines what this might have been like for Joseph. You know, there he is left behind in the prison. The baker and the cupbearer are being taken off. Joseph's probably feeling pretty hopeful at this point. Any day now, maybe even that day, the cupbearer would be back in Pharaoh's presence. He'd be talking to Pharaoh about Joseph, pleading his case, talking about his unjust imprisonment, talking about his amazing ability to interpret dreams. Surely Joseph would have felt pretty hopeful as he watched these people walk out of the prison. So that day came and went. The next day dragged by. Still no word. Another day. Another. And a whole week. Weeks became months. And months became years. Still no word. I mean, surely, that had to have an effect on Joseph. Surely, that had to be pretty tough to take. I mean, he had seen God clearly use him to reveal the meaning of these other men's dreams. So obviously, God hadn't forgotten him. God knew he was there. And yet, this same God who hadn't forgotten him had also clearly not moved the cupbearer to talk to Pharaoh about Joseph. What's more, he delivered others, but he had not delivered Joseph. And the days and the months just kept rolling by with no change in sight. So what is this story about? What is this story telling us? What's it showing us? I mean, certainly showing us, again, the providence of God. We're going to see that a lot in the Joseph stories. What we've seen in previous passages is also on display here in the details of this story. We see God's providence, firstly, in the cupbearer being sent to prison, where he will cross paths with Joseph. And then we see it in the cupbearer being given this dream that he doesn't understand, but which Joseph, by God's help, does. And then we see it in the cupbearer being restored to the place where he eventually will be in a position to speak a good word on Joseph's behalf, the key word there being eventually. But in and through all of that, we see further evidence of God guiding and shaping the various events that took place, moving them together toward a common purpose. So that's certainly something to be seen in this account, absolutely. But beyond that, it seems to me that one of the main things that stands out in these verses is Joseph's continued faithfulness through prolonged adversity. I mean, Joseph really is sort of a poster child for this. An example of enduring faith and obedience in the midst of protracted difficulties and repeated disappointments. I mean, there he is at home, right? He's back at home. He's the favored son of his father. 
The next thing he knows, he's with his brothers. He's thrown into a pit. Some of his brothers are talking about killing him. And then he's removed from the pit. But instead of being killed, he's sold as a slave to Egypt. When he gets there, his fortune seemed to improve for a time. Things are starting to go really well. And then all of a sudden, he's shot down again. He's thrown into a prison cell. And then things begin to improve there. He once again rises in prominence. And is given a golden opportunity to perhaps secure his own release. Only to be forgotten in the end. And thus have his hopes dashed once more. I mean, Joseph had plenty of opportunity for disappointment and despair. And I have no doubt that he experienced both of these things at different times and to varying degrees. He must have. I mean, Joseph was on the whole a pretty good guy, but was he any greater than other biblical figures who came later on? Was he any better than David, King David, as Cole points out? Didn't David, who had also been promised a great future by God, didn't that same David find himself running for his life for King Saul for a long time, hiding out in caves and hills? Didn't David himself say at one point, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul? What about the Apostle Paul? Even this great hero of the faith, at one point, spoke of the trials he was experiencing. Saying that he was burdened excessively beyond his strength. So much so that he despaired even of life. You go to any ER in Baton Rouge and you say those words, I despair of my life. And you're going to spend at least eight days in a protective psychiatric unit mandated by law. If men like David and Paul experience real despair at times, why not Joseph? Yet even though these things would no doubt have been features of Joseph's own life, they were not the things that defined him or controlled him. And they were not, at the end of the day, so compelling as to cause him to lose all hope in the goodness and provision of God. Right? I mean, we see that in the fact that he was not held hostage by his own troubles. He was able to look past his personal concerns to the plight of others. He had real sympathy. We see it in the way that he was willing to speak confidently about God. When they were talking about, these other guys were talking about the troubles, he talks confidently about God to these men in the prison. And think about that. I mean, even as he's still waiting for God to show up, so to speak, even if, as he's waiting for God to do something to get him out of his difficulty, he doesn't hesitate to still speak confidently about God to these men. You can't do that sort of thing. You don't do that sort of thing if you've lost hope. So Joseph is very much, I think, an example for us of what it means... To hold on in the face of prolonged difficulty. And if Joseph was able to do that on the basis of the things he had seen about God way back then, on the other side of the cross, then how much more ought we be able to do the same on the basis of the things we have seen with the fuller revelation of God that we are privileged to possess and in the face of even greater promises that have been given since the time of Joseph? 
and on this side of the cross. Still, in spite of those truths, it's never easy or automatic to do these things when we're in the midst of our troubles. And one reason is because, as one writer describes it, we do have, we do have high hopes and expectations for how God is going to deal with us, don't we? And shouldn't we? We've seen the things He's done in the past. We've seen the things He's done in the present, in the lives of others, some of whom we know. All of us can think of stories where God has intervened in people's lives in pretty amazing ways. There's a lot of evidence there. But it's not the only evidence to be seen. Alongside the evidence of God sometimes intervening and delivering His people in very dramatic ways, there's also evidence that because it's not as spectacular, I think does not catch our attention as well, but it's no less real. And that is the evidence of God's often not delivering His people from their circumstances, but instead providing for them and meeting them in the midst of their difficulties. Indeed, if we look carefully, I think what we find is that that is the normal That is the ordinary way in which God works. For every instance of spectacular deliverance from adversity, there are probably ten instances of non-deliverance from adversity and instead of endurance through adversity. I think we see this in Scripture. I think we see this in life. So when we are in difficult circumstances... Should we pray for deliverance? Absolutely. Pray for big things. I'm sure Joseph did every day. But alongside that prayer, we ought to also pray for a patient, enduring faith, for a stubborn hope that outlasts any season of despair And that sees well beyond the immediate horizon and which empowers and enables because of the hope we have in Jesus. But it enables us to humbly and fully and faithfully give ourselves to whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our brother Joseph and his example. We thank you even more for the one to whom he points us, the Lord Jesus, and his endurance through great adversity and suffering by which he gained the victory of the cross and has set us free and has assured us, Lord, of the fulfillment of your good plans and purposes for us. And that is a great comfort. So help us to remember that. When things are so deep and so thick that the sun itself seems to be obscured, help us to remember and to respond faithfully in the midst of the circumstances that you have been pleased to place us in. Just as our brother Joseph did. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.
those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We will collect that at this time.